0: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this lecture in the Rare Book School Summer Lecture Series. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library and the Harrison Institute for their kind hospitality. And I'd like to begin by reading to you. So get comfortable, get out your warm milk and cookies. I won't read law. This book examines the ways that media, and particularly new media, are experienced and studied as historical subjects. It uses the examples of recorded sound, new between 1878 and 1910, and the World Wide Web. Though presented chronologically in parts one and two, The histories of recorded sound and digital networking rendered here are intended to speak to one another. In particular, I mean to turn the case of phonographs against the question of the web, and thereby challenge readers to imagine what a meaningful history of today's new media might eventually look like, as well as to think about how accounts of media in general should be written. This, then, is a book about the ways scholars and critics do media history, but it is more importantly about the ways that people experience meaning, how they perceive the world and communicate with each other, how they distinguish the past and identify culture." That's really smart stuff. It's by our speaker today, obviously, Lisa Gittleman, who's professor of English and of Media, Culture, and Communication. The little excerpt I read is from the first page of her book, Always Ready, Always Already New, Media History and the data of culture Uh, lisa's written any number of important books scripts grooves and writing machines representing technology in the edison era from stanford university press Um, this book that i just read to you from Uh, she's just got uh, her second edited collection out raw data is an oxymoron a collection of essays from MIT, and um, in press right now is a book called Paper Knowledge Toward a Media History of Documents, which will be published by Duke University Press. You are about to hear one of the very finest minds in America in media studies. I am delighted to introduce Lisa Giddelman to you.
1: Okay, now I'm a little
2: embarrassed, um, but thank you, Michael, and thank you all for coming. It's really a delight to be here, an honor uh, to be invited, um, and I thank you all for being here. Um, let me know if any, at any time you can't hear me. This seems like it's a little too loud, so I'm going to step a, a half a step back. Um, well, so this talk is drawn from a larger project that I am, as uh, Michael said, calling a, a, a Media History of Documents. Um, And what I wanted to do in positioning this work is uh, just sort of clear a little ground, uh, a little elbowing, um, uh, by complaining about the ways that print, and in particular the book, um, uh, get discussed today in scholarly as well as increasingly in popular uh, discourse. Um, And I think that this is um, particularly, of course, because uh, of the way that print and the book are used as kind of blunt objects Uh, in that conversation we're always having about um, the new digital media. Um, So it's as if I think um, that uh, uh, the onslaught of new media has really turned us all into historians of communication in a way over the last decade perhaps. Um, But the history of communication as it's been rendered over the last 50 years has been a pretty unsatisfying endeavor uh, uh, in my mind, a kind of big-boned affair, narrating a sequence of momentous shifts, oral to literate, print, manuscript to print, print to electronic. Um, and what I want to do is kind of argue against this kind of thinking, uh, and in particular to challenge the notion of print culture. Um, It's a concept and a term that I myself have used many times in the past, um, for which I now apologize, Um, and I'm sure that many of you use that um, as well, Um, but I hope I can persuade you to try and put it aside, uh, as I intend to do um, going forward. Um, So my book begins with an account of 19th century uh, commercial printing, Um, and today I'll sketch, I hope, some of the productivity of that subject um, before gesturing very uh, briefly to the project as a whole. Um, But first, this task about print culture. Um, The distinction between manuscript and print is a familiar one, um, though I'd submit that there's significant poverty in these gross categories. Um, For one thing, far from a simple precursor, manuscript stands as a back formation of printing. Um, That is, before the invention of printing, there was no need to describe manuscript as such. You could say, if you favor the term inventing, that print and manuscript were invented at the same time. Um, meanwhile, the term print, of course, uh, has come to encompass many and uh, diverse technologies for the mechanical reproduction of text, despite its primary association in our minds uh, historically um, with letterpress printing a la Gutenberg, uh, if you happen to be in the West. Uh, until the 19th century, every uh, text printed was printed by letterpress using a process of composition, imposition, proofing, and press work very like the ones that Johannes Gutenberg, his associates and competitors um, developed in the mid-15th century. Um, although saying so already admittedly overlooks things like xylography, right, woodblock printing, or uh, intaglio processes like copper plate engravings. Um, Now, just to draw the contrast, since 1800, uh, multiple planographic, photochemical, and electrostatic means of printing have been devised and variously deployed to the point that today virtually nothing printed is printed by letterpress. Um, Tables turned, the term print has floated free of any specific technology if indeed it was ever moored in the first place, yet we're always talking about it. Instead, print has come, become, come to be defined, um, I'm going to use Michael Warner here, um, as if in reflexive recourse to its own back formation, um, by dint of a negative relation to the writer's hand. Um, so then anything that, isn't, uh, anything that isn't handmade or handwritten or even typed letter by letter um, would count as printed. Um, well, today, even the printer's hand has gone missing since we've become accustomed to speaking or writing of printers not as people, but as machines connected to our com- computers. Um, uh, actually, so, so almost as decisively then that as the, the word computers, um, the word printers uh, has shifted meaning um, once it meant people, and now it means machines. Um, that Gutenberg's Bible and the assortment of documents rolling out of my laser printer at home all count as printed only goes to show how difficult it can be to speak or write about media with any great precision. Um, but, uh, uh, so I'm, I'm talking about the poverty of terminology, which I think we all have to bear as a burden, um, but I think I'm also pointing as well to the idiosyncratic power of what John Guillory calls the media concept. Two things going on. Um, Now, if print is tricky, print culture uh, is problematic in other ways. Um, Print culture, obviously, is a much more recent term. Um, As Paula McDowell explains, it was coined by Marshall McLuhan in the 1960s uh, and then earned its broad utility uh, with the 1979 publication of Elizabeth Eisenstein's um, The Printing Press as an Agent of Change. Uh, Now, many of you may know that Elizabeth Eisenstein's version of print culture has been the subject of sustained critique, Um, for its apparent suggestion uh, that there's a logic inherent to print. Um, Yet I'd submit that even the notion's harshest critics have tended to um, reinstall or reinvent print culture um, rather than to suggest that there uh, uh, is no such thing. Um, Adrian Johns, to take a prominent example, points toward, quote, sources of print culture that are less technological than social. Um, Tracing the conventions of handling and investing credit in textual materials that emerged during the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe, um, coincident as it happens with the knowledge-making of early modern science. Um, This is the subject of Johns' gigantic nature of the book in a tiny nutshell. Um, For his part, Michael Warner tries to avoid writing of print culture as though to attribute a teleology to print, while he traces the 18th century development of, quote, Republican print culture in Anglo-America, which, as it happens, comes to double historically as the logic of the bourgeois public sphere. In both cases, print culture is something that developed according to the uses of printing as those uses became widely shared norms involving the agencies of authors, readers, and booksellers or publishers. Um, uh, You can hear me going for the A, the R, and the P uh, in SHARP, right? the History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing, if any of you are headed to Philadelphia in a few days. Um, Now, used in this way, the concept of print culture works as a sprawling catch-all, kind of depends on the increasingly expansive use of the word culture in its anthropological sense to suggest a pattern of life structured to some degree by what Warner calls the cultural meanings of printedness. Um, I think we have to stop and ask, finally, How widely, how unanimously, how continuously can the meanings of printedness be shared and what exactly are their structuring roles? Um, How best to find out? How would we know? Um, These are really kind of interesting big theory method questions. Um, With science and the public sphere as its mutual cousins, print culture starts to seem related in scale to Western modernity itself and so to jeopardize explanation in all of the same ways. Um, Jonathan Crary, uh, at the beginning of his great um, book, Techniques of the Observer, signals some of this jeopardy um, when he writes, What happens to the observer in the 19th century is a process of modernization. He or she is made adequate to a constellation of new events, forces, and institutions that are together loosely and perhaps tautologically definable as modernity. Um, So what I'm saying is that print culture and the cultural meanings of printedness risk chasing each other, cart and horse, explanation and explanandum, like modernization and modernity. Um, I think we just need to jettison the whole term, um, or at least to learn to specify, you know, sort of how it works and what it should specifically mean um, in the specific and particular context in which we use it. Um, now, this isn't to deny the uh, or to disparage um, the importance of printing or to um, sort of bash uh, Adrian Johns or Michael Warner, both of whom I uh, adore and upon whom I rely, um, uh, only to argue against print culture um, or even print cultures, uh, plural, Um, As an analytic, uh, loosed from the very specific histories of printing, print publication, regulation, distribution, and circulation, um, with which uh, RBS uh, is so concerned. Um, As a thought experiment of sorts, then, and inspired by Johns and others, what I'd like to do today is just a kind of mini thought experiment Um, I'd like to adopt the narrowest possible definition of print culture um, to see if we can't get the concept to work or at least to figure out ways in which maybe it it will or won't work. Um, uh, So I'm just gonna stipulate um, as the the sort of get go of this thought experiment. I'm gonna stipulate that whatever else it may or may not be, um, print culture should embrace the customs and practices that evolved um, within Western printing establishments among men and women who have, since the 1450s, specialized in the technological reproduction of textual materials, it's a lot to say, but it seems reasonable to me that print culture, whatever it is, right, or whatever else it is, um, should be um, so, so uh, uh, sort of overlap um, with the culture of printers. Um, uh, so, print culture, in this sense, um, uh, was consolidated as such by the guild and apprenticeship systems, for instance. As well as by emergent social and economic norms that work to structure printers as a class of actors in relation to other actors. Um, Actors like authors and um, booksellers, yes, but also actors like uh, institutional actors like the church and state. Um, Print culture, in this sense, is of course a changeable beast. Um, developed first in the early modern period. It found uh, expression in elaborate and dynamic array of trade practices. Um, It also, of course, developed its own trade literature, um, beginning in English with Moxon's mechanic exercises on the whole art of printing. Um, And it must, in some measure, persist today, albeit in a different and attenuated form. Um, To give some idea, in 2008, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics um, found that half a million people were employed in the printing industry in the United States um, it divided uh, the industry into 12 segments, of which the largest was commercial lithography, and the smallest was blank book and loose-leaf binder manufacturing. So print culture in extensory. Um Now, one advantage of returning print culture to the printing house uh, is that it helps recalibrate the relative importance of the codex, or more familiarly, the book, um, Uh, focusing our attention on non-codex forms generally, um, and the sprawling genre of the document in particular, which I've been interested in for um, the past several years. Um, As Peter Stahlerbras reminds us, printers do not print books, they print sheets of paper. Making books is a binder's business. It happens later, usually separately, um, from printing. And plenty of printed sheets never end up as books at all. They are non-codex for good and by design. Um, in fact, the earliest extant example of letterpress printing in Europe um, that can be uh, definitively um, dated uh, is not a codex, uh, apparently. It's a 1454 papal indulgence, um, a fill-in-the-blank form, a ticket to heaven, um, printed for the Catholic Church to sell to wealthy par- parishioners. Um, and scholars apparently think that Gutenberg just took a break from uh, publishing, uh, rather printing sheets. Um, to be bound into Bibles um, to um, uh, uh, turn out a couple thousand of these indulgences. Um, Remember that the full title of Martin Luther's subsequent call for reform, the 95 Theses, posted on the doors of the Wittenberg Cathedral in 1517, um, was 95 Theses on the efficacy of indulgences. Um, They weren't apparently particularly efficacious, Um, uh, or not in the way intended. Um, Novelist Victor Hugo famously characterized the Protestant Reformation as a battle between the printed book and the Gothic cathedral. Um, Yet seen from another angle, it really looks a lot more like a poster war, right? The Catholic Church enunciating and posting its papal bills with the reformers uh, replying in kind um, with uh, non-codex broadside forms. Um, In 1528, apparently one group of reformers apparently went so far as to publish a fake bull asking Catholics to read and disseminate Luther. (laughs) Um, Though survival rates vary, of course, relatively few indulgences, broadsides, or other unbrowned sheets have survived to the present day, um, and certainly never in complete editions. Whatever its other merits and affordances, the Codex has proved particularly effective as a technology for preserving print. Um, Printers long styled their craft as the art preservative of other arts. Um, And Eisenstein has a section uh, in her um, book uh, on the preservative power of print. Um, But the relative survival rates of codex and non-codex print artifacts suggest that printing doesn't really preserve things at all. It's more likely folding, gathering, and sewing sheets into books that does. Um, Where scattered instances of indulgences, posters, and similar non-codex artifacts have managed to survive, they tend to get uh, classed according to that most unglamorous and miscellaneous of bibliographical designations, uh, ephemera. Um, To the extent that non-codex works as a classification at all then, um, it designates material experienced in the moment uh, and then associated in hindsight, Um, with impermanence or ephemerality, rather than with permanence or with preservation. Non-codex print artifacts are more transitory than archival, you could say, Uh, more transactional than accumulative. Um, The things they contain are more accelerative than uh, inertial, um, if you think about it. Um, They're used up, in short, more than they are stored away. And this is probably particularly true of um, uh, the most important modern non-codex form um, that's less consistently classed as ephemera than newspaper. In 1829, the United States Supreme Court said you couldn't copyright um, newspapers um, because they were so fluctuating and fugitive, right? So changeable according according to the um, timeliness of their issue and the currency of their contents. Um, in 1918, the court went even further, suggesting that hat news could not be copyrighted, even if the particularity of its expression could. Um, the codex and its contents are sluggish and cold by comparison to non-codex forms. Um, books are slow to bloom, and any, as anyone will admit who's ever tried to write and get one published. Um, Now, nowhere are the inertial qualities of things printed in books more evident, ironically, than in the uh, printing trade literature descended from Moxon. The late 17th century mechanic exercises, if you've never seen it, gives a massively detailed how-to account of letterpress printing. Um, But Moxon also renders ancient customs proper to the craft, describing the roles, rituals, and usages um, that had structured the chapel or the printing house, he writes, for, quote, time out of mind. Um, Now, after Moxon, generation after generation of printers' manuals follow Moxon and then follow each other following Moxon. It's a very repetitive um, literature. Um, uh, They borrow liberally from one another, each appearing to reveal to the world some of the secrets of the trade at the same time that they articulate an orderliness and a regularity um, that was much more uh, likely uh, wished than lived. Um, The chapel could be a uh, divisive place, uh, chaotic, riven by strife, as well-known examples documented by Robert Darton or uh, described by Benjamin Franklin, uh, evidence. Um, after 1800 this trade literature tended to express the conflict between order and actuality in terms of tradition and progress Um, uh, printers were caught between time out of mind and all of the changes um, they they focused on technological changes um, staring them in the face Um, the the former earned them a solidarity that the the latter might jeopardize Um, Certainly by the end of the 19th century, the printer's trade literature was largely a reactive project aimed at um, containment and consolidation um, in the face of uh, uh, huge anxiety. Um, One result was a frequent retelling of printing history, a veritable cult of Gutenberg and Franklin, um, that I think becomes a pillar um, for the history of communication in interesting ways. Um, So if we're going to try and generalize um, or encapsulate um, the non-codex, it's difficult. Um, Among other things, the relative impermanence or ephemerality of non-codex artifacts makes it all but impossible to judge the numbers in which they've circulated at different periods. Um, Survival rates are minuscule, but worse, the survival rates are so variable. Um, uh, that survive in quantities are meaningless, while records of production are really difficult to come by. Um, we do have some numbers. Um, the best numbers come from a um, uh, 1904 census of manufacturers done here in the U.S. and a 1907 census of uh, production done in the United Kingdom. Um, so both conducted well after the industrialization of the printing trades and penetrated all but uh, pretty remote uh, enclaves in both the U.S. and the United Kingdom. Um, Printing had long been divided into um, three categories, um, not 12. Um, And I have the breakout from um, the U.S. Census of Manufacturers here to give you some idea. Um, The three categories were um, periodical and newspaper work, um, book and pamphlet publishing, um, and then the other category, which gets called job uh, printing um, uh, for uh, uh, most of the 19th century. Um, And then there's a small miscellaneous Um, You can see it's one-third job printing, roughly, and about a half uh, periodical newspaper. You get about 11% uh, books and pamphlets. Um, You know, what tiny fraction of that would be uh, literature? And then the miscellaneous stuff includes things like uh, music publishing, um, lithography, uh, blank books, which is a really ancient uh, specialization, apparently. Um, Now, uh, these numbers are a little squishy because the sensitive manufacturers uh, went for the value of goods produced, which is a weird metric, Um, but you have to remember, too, that the the industry's three segments were admittedly blurry and really um, entangled with one another, um, as material from periodicals got republished uh, in books, of course. Um, as newspapers ran jobbing houses on the side, um, and as job printers were hired to uh, work uh, for hire for uh, book publishers and newspaper publishers. Um, So we're gonna have to just take these figures for what they're worth, Um, and if we do, you see that basically about a third of this sector of the economy has gone completely missing um, from media history, uh, as as well largely from literary and textual studies. Um, Gutenberg has his cult, uh, print as noun and verb has handily outlived letterpress, um, but who besides printers has ever heard or cared about job printing? Um, To give you a better idea, um, an 1894 Dictionary of Printing and Bookmaking uh, offered these examples in its uh, entry on job printing, um, doubtlessly, again, culling from an earlier source. There's no way this was an 1894 list, um, as you'll see, I think. Um, I'm just going to sit with this list for a few minutes and and think about job printing as a category. Um, Remember that my window here is sort of the end of the 19th century. Um, It's a list certainly that recalls Gutenberg's fill-in-the-blank indulgences, while yet speaking powerfully of the Anglophone world's rendezvous with bureaucracy uh, in the 19th century. The arrival of finance capitalism and the modern corporation with its managers and memos springs to mind. Um, most of the items listed uh, were printed for businesses doing business, not for private individuals. Uh, and as such, they were intended to function as instruments of corporate speech. Um, even the examples that appeal to leisure, right, like the, the ball tickets and the orders of dancing, um, uh, do so within a managerial frame of sorts. If one subtracts banking, shipping, and insurance from the list, bureaucracy still reigns, uh, along with vernacular documents associated still with everyday life, uh, commuting tickets, uh, eating out menus, um, keeping up newspapers, uh, and um, uh, voting ballots, things like that, maybe getting married, getting sued. Um, now because so many of these print genres uh, uh, that were handled by the jobbing press functioned as instruments of corporate speech, I think they stand at odds with traditional notions of publication. Um, yes, a railroad company can be said to have published its fairs right, and published its schedules, but it makes little sense to think of the railroad company's letterhead um, as a publication, or to think of the headings in its account books as having been published in anything like the usual way. Um, For that matter, neither the Catholic Church nor Gutenberg um, can be said to have published indulgences, even though they were certainly printed in sizable editions. Books, newspapers, and magazines are published. Um, Posters, concert programs, and pamphlets, I guess, are published, too. Um, But much of the output of the jobbing press seems to have been just printing, not publication. Um, It wasn't meant to issue forth into that public arena, that ongoing space for the encounter of discourse that is distinctively modern because it's organized by nothing other than discourse itself, uh, as Michael Warner has theorized. Um, instead, print artifacts like letterhead or stock certificates inform communications that are sequestered from the public sphere and only thereby um, uh, beholden to it. Right? It's a kind of transitive relationship. Um, I think they work by kind of triangulating um, the modern self in relation to authority. Um, the authority of the look of print, I think, on the one hand, but certainly as well the authority of specific, specific um, social subsystems or bureaucracies on the other. Right? So the church and its wealthy parishioner negotiate each other partly by means of that printed indulgence. The railroad company's uh, representative um, and his correspondent likewise negotiate each other partly by dint of letterhead. Um, In either case, parties communicate in a discursive realm organized not only by discourse, but also by competing structures. Um, Think religious, corporate, professional, educational, clinical, financial, municipal, and all these different institutions of modern life. Um, That I think work as so many loose and chaotic cross-stitches over and against the public sphere. Um, You could think of these uh, these institutions as sort of pulling the public sphere together, but I think you could also think of them potentially worrying it, worrying us uh, apart in our multiple allegiances to multiple institutions. Um, and now that, uh, that was publishers. If publishers don't really seem to fit in the world of job printing, um, nor exactly do readers. I mean, who ever really reads uh, receipts, right? Bills of uh, lading, tickets, bonds, certificates. Um, sure, they wouldn't function if they didn't have writing on them. Um, yet few people would describe their functioning in terms of reading, um, unless in the context of controversy, right? Like a tax audit. Um, when reading and often a kind of forensic analysis um, will enter the picture. Um, Notably, whatever reading is entailed um, by genres like bills of lading and stock transfers, um, it's not reading that has anything to do with the sort of readerly subjectivity that came to such special prominence in the course of the 18th uh, and 19th centuries, the subjectivities of literature in uh, in general and of the novel in particular. One might well identify with characters in Jane Austen, right, or uh, ponder the psychologies in George Eliot, but that's exactly what one doesn't do. One, what, what one can't do, right, with shares of stock enumerated on a stock transfer, um, details spelled out in an insurance policy, um, or particulars identified on letterhead. Um, nor do genres like these inspire identification among communities of readers, um, the way that newspapers are said to have done because of the semi-ritualized character of their consumption. Um, the non-codex forms I'm thinking about didn't have readers, right? They had users instead, to use a more modern term. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that users don't have subjectivities; they do, of course. But if we were to set about describing them, I think we'd go, you know, sort of on with a different project. Now, lacking publishers and readers, maybe it'll be no surprise to say that much of the output of job printing also lacks authors. Um, account book headings actually proved this point thanks to an important copyright case um, heard by the United States Supreme Court in 1879. Um, the case concerned a new uh, technique um, for bookkeeping. Uh, it was aimed at county functionaries in Ohio, a hotbed of invention for some reason. Um, and uh, the, um, this guy named Selden um, so published a little booklet that had some sample forms in it right, to illustrate his method. Um, so blank letter sheets with headings. I, I wish I had a picture, but the picture would be really boring. Um, another bookkeeper um, tried to promote a rival system, uh, and it went to um, the courts as a copyright case. Um, an appeal it was called Baker v. Selden. Uh, it, it's an important case um, because it's the origin of what jurists call the idea-expression uh, dichotomy. Right? Ideas are free to everyone. Um, uh, copyright covers uh, the way those ideas get expressed. Um, Selden had described his method uh, of bookkeeping, his copyright was for the description. The court said, not the method. right now here's the kicker though: um, his authorship of the manual could not extend to its sample forms because anyone using his method of bookkeeping perforce used sheets headed with headings like those. Um, uh, they were part of his idea, not its expression, part of his method, not its description. Um, so too must printed checks, receipts, and other blank forms be said to constitute, not express, the idea of their own filling in. Um, it's a weird hall of Mirrors thing once you start thinking about it. I mean, actually locked within this, this um, uh, decision was, a, remember, it's 1879, is a question for the future, kind of unaskable for another century uh, or more. Um, because I think what, what may have looked in the 19th century like um, some, a question of the division of mental labor, right? since the people who design and deploy for, form blank forms are always thinking ahead to their filling in by somebody else. Um, So it looked like um, a division of labor in the 19th century. Um, By the 20th century, it was going to look a lot more like a question of software, right? Because you could think of Charles Seldon's um, account book as a little program for the execution of his kind of uh, bookkeeping, um, or the blank areas of the form as the kind of uh, nascent fields and tables of a database. Um, Should software be copyrightable? Can data uh, uh, written into um, can the fields and tables of a database uh, be copyrighted? Um, Should you be able to own um, the drop-down menu structure of an interface? Um, Contests over questions like these um, broached and then quickly exceeded the idea-expression dichotomy. While Baker v. Selden has continued to come up uh, in important um, copyright cases. Um, beyond the legal context, I think it's just really interesting that today so many um, blank forms that we encounter online, right, are designed to look like 19th-century job printing on paper. Um, this, despite the very flexible architecture and manipulability, excuse me, that, that lie um, beneath or below the interface. Um, one renders oneself as data every time one fills in a form online, every time one completes a site registration uh, or types something into a search box, or now apparently makes a phone call or sends a text message. Um, But digital texts are going to have to wait for another day. I want to get back to my little experiment about um, print culture, um, and then I will um, sort of move myself over and try and introduce the project that I've been working on um, for the last few years. Um, for which job printing um, uh, works as a kind of entry point. Um, so generalization is admittedly very difficult, and I hope I've been uh, cagey uh, in, in laying this out, um, because non-codex embraces such a you know, gigantic and heterogeneous uh, class of material, um, uh, and because the uh, history of printing has been so long and varied. Um, and yet the subject of job printing proves wonderfully suggestive, I think, um, so I'm going to speculate on the basis of um, the numbers I have from the late 19th century, as well as on that list of genres uh, of job printing. And I think that it seems, um, if you if you think about these things together, that a perhaps the significant amount of bread and butter had within the printing trades um, uh, in that period, um, and I think over the course of the 19th century at least, um, was the result of printing things that weren't meant to be bound. Um, that wouldn't last for very long, that weren't formally edited or published, that didn't have readers or create readerships, um, that might not be protected by authorial rights. Um, It would seem, that is, that by seeking so strenuously to constrain the meaning of print culture, i have somehow made it balloon enormously in size um, because now it sprawls so far beyond those normal agencies, the A, the R, and the P. Um, authorship, reading, and publishing so far beyond the interests of cultural memory and the preservation of knowledge. Um, Either print culture doesn't include the culture of printers, right, or the conception itself just doesn't make much sense. Um, So taking account of the non-codex leads someplace other than print culture. It leads, that is, to the kind of poverty um, of this analytic. Um, If we are to think critically about media and their history, it would be well to reject or to refine the contrastive generalities with which the history of communication and the recent promotion of digital forms have saddled us. I think we need be especially wary uh, of recent claims that quote, the age of print is passing um, because print is no longer a default medium. Um, I'm I'm quoting Kate Hales here, um, uh, but really, uh, I I blame the Modern Language Association more. Um, Since its um, uh, 2009 MLA Handbook for Writers of Research Papers, um, it says uh, that it no longer recognizes a default medium. Um, And if you've ever used the MLA citation um, style, uh, in this edition they switch, recall, to uh, having... um, uh, 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 scholars label in their work cited lists when something is print or web. Um, It's reason enough to switch to Chicago style. (laughs) 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 Though I I suspect that the MLA is going to back off of this in the next edition. Um, Statements like these about a default medium tend to reify, um, that is, ironically, to default to um, print as a universal. Um, Consider the very specific histories that might be told of printing over the last five and a half centuries um, and around the world. Um, Print is not one thing. It is, has been, and will be many. Um, The relevant multiplicities are best glimpsed not by comparing media forms, but rather by attending the specific structures and practices within which those forms have come to make sense at different times and among different social groups. Um, so historical and cultural specificity is key. Um, so you see, I'm trying to make a kind of layered claim here. On the one hand, that the word print refers to this whole you know, sort of panoply of um, evolving technologies. Um, but the, on the other hand, this sort of crucial second layer that any particular technology is not, it doesn't have a stable meaning in time or in, in, in space, but is in, instead, you know, sort of variously meaningful according to historical and cultural um, uh, contexts and specifics. Um, so in the, in the short time I have remaining, what I'd like to do is go to a very specific time and place, um, and that's the sort of first half of the 1870s in the U.S., um, because that way I'll be able to introduce you to my favorite job printer of the moment, um, Oscar Herpel of Cincinnati. Um, now, uh, he's uh, the author, printer, um, uh, possibly even publisher, if you want to use the term, uh, of two books. Um, the first of them, um, lovingly digitized by the Internet Archive, is called Herpel's Typograph, or Book of Specimens, um, uh, subtitled containing useful information, suggestions, and a collection of examples of letterpress job printing arranged for the assistance of master printers, amateurs, apprentices, and others. Um, Now, the second uh, Harpal title is called, um, well, it's been less lovingly digitized by Google Books, um, and it's called um, Poets and Poetry of Printerdom. Um, And again, there's a long subtitle, um, a collection of original, selected, and fugitive lyrics written by persons uh, connected with printing. Um, now, Of the two, the typograph, Harper's Typograph, is much more uh, well-known and, and, and uh, much more important. Um, so I just want to offer a brief description uh, of the typograph um, and then I'll, I'll return to just these two titles um, to consider them together as a way to um, offer a snapshot of the, maybe some of the meanings of letterpress in the first half of the 1870s in the US. Um, so Har- Harper's Typograph is one weird book. Um, It's a a specimen book of job printing specimens that um, sort of uh, came across Harple's threshold um, by happenstance as he's working as a a job printer. Um, So in in general, um, Harple is not responsible for his own uh, copy, um, that is, for the matter he set in type, um, though he did exert control um, over innumerable details of layout and design. That's the best picture I have, so I'm going to leave it there. Um, working within constraints that are impossible to identify in retrospect, right? Which spacing, which fonts, and which colors were the printer's choices, and which the customer's choices? Uh, which were non-choices inherited with certain documentary subgenres or formats, right? Because that's what a, 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 an invoice looks like, or that's what a diploma has to be, um, and other habits or imperatives of the trade. Um, Indeed, the content of these books, it's it's, it's a really difficult term, but the content of these books is really um, difficult to resolve because of the ways its codex form occludes the habitual formats of the job office. Um, What does this book actually contain? Certainly not the book plates, uh, cards, handbills, and envelopes that Harpel's Index of Specimens lists, Um, Harpel has separated um, uh, his impressions from the usual paper or cardstock of the job printing office in producing sheets to be bound. Um, So there are no book plates, no diplomas, no envelopes uh, here, only uh, printing ink that would have marked and made them functional as such. The specimens as such rest on top of the paper, calling attention to its surface with the delicacy of their impression. And I think particularly with his use of color, he's sort of signaling some of the contrast between letterpress and the lithographic um, technologies of the day. Um, So that's sort of part of the kind of contrastive meaning um, of print um, for uh, Harple in the least. Um, These specimens are unused, unusable specimens of ink shaped by specimens of labor. Um, They adhere to the pages of this book the way that dead butterflies might be pinned gently to a board. Um, Now, uh, I'm going to step outside the typograph and go back to the typograph and um, uh, Poets in Poetry of Printerdom, um, because I think he's uh, publishing these books at precisely the moment um, that what I'll call the printer's monopoly um, was finally broken. Um, And it's a moment that's been largely overlooked by media history. Um, I hope I'm not putting too fine a point on it when I say that uh, up until the American Civil War, um, authors only penned, while only printers printed. Right? Letterpress printers had a lock on the look of printedness. Um, everybody else, right? The rest of us were trapped in longhand. Um, and and you know this is obvious when I say it, but it happened so long ago um, that I think we've forgotten what it was like. We've forgotten the power of this distinction. Um, We've forgotten even that we were once limited um, to longhand. I mean, schools are no longer even teaching cursive, cursive, so longhand itself is changing uh, meanings all the time as well. If Harple's Poets and Poetry of Printerdom sounds like an assertion then um, that C, printers can be authors too, right, I think we have to listen to a kind of understated but nonetheless crucially important undertone there, right? See, printers can be authors too, um, but the corollary, authors really should not be printers. And yet, you saw from the uh, subtitle of the typograph, right, five years earlier in 1870, um, that it addressed itself, among other people, to amateur printers, right? So something is happening um, at this this, uh, sort of threshold, if you like. Um, it seems likely that Harpole's use of the term printerdom in 1875 um, was a reaction to another coinage, um, amateurdom. Um, the OED unfortunately is no help here whatsoever um, because its compilers didn't notice the suffix "dom" um, until 1880. Um, so I found all kinds of precedents. Uh, no big deal, right? No genius on my part. Now that we have searchable databases. Um, uh, What I will say is that um, by the uh, 1870s, uh, amateurdom, not printerdom, um, was a common American usage, um, so much so that that by the 1880s, it was familiar enough to be shortened as second-order slang, um, so that increasing numbers of amateur printers, editors, and writers participated in the domain that some of them sometimes called um, the dumb. Um, Now, uh, very briefly, the character of amateurdom can be gleaned from the collections of the American Antiquarian Society, um, which contains more than 50,000 amateur newspapers. Um, The earliest amateur newspapers um, were pen-printed, the AAS says, um, which means um, written out by hand to look kind of like printing, um, or they were job-printed by hiring professional printers to print them. Um, but the collection DAS the A.S. Uh, uh, reveals a kind of tenfold increase in production after 1869, 1870, um, when a, a small platen press called the Novelty Press came on the market, um, uh, marketed to uh, amateurs, um, uh, m- uh, merchants and druggists, right, who could use it to print their own price cards and things like that, um, but then also and increasingly boys and girls. Um, uh, the typograph uh, has a small selection of um, ads at the back in an advertiser's addendum so that Harpole could thank the people who uh, gave him support. Um, and, and as luck would have it, um, the novelty press has an ad at the back of the typograph. Um, Elizabeth Harris has remarked that it's hard to explain the depth of hostility expressed in the trade journals to amateur printing and printers, um, since the real damage done to the trade by amateurs must have been negligible at best. Um, But printing by amateurs was an insult, um, an invasion of printerdom. Um, Of course, at the same time that amateur printing eroded the printer's monopoly on that look of printedness, printing itself ceased to be the only way that writing could be mechanically produced or reproduced. Um, So a variety of technological innovations, of which typewriters would in a sense prove the most important, offered writers the means of authorial expression in standardized letterforms with standardized spacing. Um, A revolution in business communication was at hand, um, and the scriptural economy grew correspondingly in scale and complexity. Not only did advancing literacies, the proliferation of print formats, and the widespread adoption of new media help to complicate 19th century experiences of writing and of writtenness, um, and of printing and the look of print, um, of graphy and graphism, if you think of all the graphies, the new graphies of the 19th century, starting with lithography and telegraphy. Um, But uh, what was happening is that the um, printing and the look of printedness were themselves being reframed. Um, by um, uh, new technologies for the production and reproduction of writing. Um, the printer's monopoly uh, knocked a little askew with the advent of amateur printing um, collapsed with the proliferation of typewriters and an ensuing century of innovation adre- addressed at reproducing typescript without setting type, um, such as mimeograph, um, hectograph, or ditto, uh, photo, af- photo offset, um, eventually Xerox. Um, and eventually, uh, kind of a slightly different category in my mind, the um, WYSIWYG um, uh, design and uh, production tools of desktop publishing.
1: Um,
2: so, um, uh, to conclude, um, the last quarter of the 19th century um, looks, from my perspective, like a forgotten turning point, um, long unnoticed by the history of communication as well as by generalizations about print and the book. Um, the media history of documents that I've been working on takes job printing and Oscar Harpel as its jumping off point um, before chapters that consider 1930s mimeograph and microfilm, um, 1960s xerography, uh, and then the PDF file. Um, I can probably describe, just at the end here, the project in two ways. I'll give you the happy way and then the sad way. Okay, the happy way. Um, this is partly a history of textual reproduction done by new and different means, Uh, as well as by additional and increasingly diverse actors, right? The amateurs and others who get in there. That's the happy story. Um, Yet innovations in textual reproduction are typically made in the interests of officialdom. So it's also partly a history of an increasingly dense overlay of institutions and institutionalized realms. That's the sad story. Sorry to end that way, but thank you. I am uh, more than happy to take any questions. I realize uh, as a New Yorker, I speak incredibly quickly. (laughs) Yeah, Rachel, thank you. That's a great question. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think that changes too much. I mean, to, uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to suggest is that the uh, you know the printedness period, and I, of course I'm much more familiar with the 19th century than the earlier periods, um, works as a kind of uh, machine tool, a kind of lathe or a filter um, through which uh, ideas get shoved um, into this look of printedness, um, and, and printers just have a lock on that. Um, they, they're the ones, you know, sort of at the machine tool um, doing the standardized uh, production. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, they are as involved as anybody else uh, as authors and in a world of um, longhand. Uh, I don't, yeah. Yeah, there, there are, you know, there are sort of counterexamples, of course, that in a sense I think help prove the distinction I'm trying to make, thinking of. Um, Walt Whitman, you know, authors so sort of deeply invested in printing their works or printing technology. Printer-author, I mean, America has a long tradition of uh, uh, authors, Twain, Howells, the rest of them who work in print shops. I think, you know, since we can rattle them off as exceptions, they sort of prove the rule here that the, that the gulf, which we still, you know, we're still thinking of as a gulf between longhand and printing, is just one that we've forgotten to experience in 19th century terms, Right, we've forgotten the power, the nineteenth the century salience of that, and, the, and of course, in early, Rachel, you know the early periods uh, better than I. Yes. Which one of us? Uh, okay. Go ahead.
0: Um, I'm, I'm sort of I'm very interested in this idea of that the printer has a monopoly not so much on the ability to print, but on the ability to create the printedness, the sort of visual. Um, and perhaps, and I'm curious about because one of the ideas that doesn't seem to lose at even with these new technologies is the ability to create the book in the sense of not that he's I mean, yes, he prints paper, not books but you can't just, you know, you don't really want to just print single sheets to create a solid, durable book Mm -hmm. so I'm curious was there, it certainly seems that the amateur is getting access to all the job printing ability in the sense of creating single sheet ephemera were there technologies being developed that gave gave him or her access
1: to The Gathering uh, uh-huh. to create this
2: sort of quasi-book? Ooh, God, great question. I don't know the answer in the specific terms in which you're asking it, whether um, this democratization, you know, we could sort of cartoonily call it, of um, the look of printedness extended to binding uh, technologies. Um, what I can say, though, is that... Um, In the 1930s in particular, some of these other non-letterpress printing technologies were used um, very self-consciously and with great public acclaim to start making books, right? So versions of typescript books that were mimeographs or dittos um, or photo offset. Photo offset in the 30s becomes a kind of breakthrough for different kinds of books. Um, uh, so in that sense, yes, um, it, it doesn't happen at the same moment um, as the amateurs get access to printing single sheets, um, but they're doing these little newspapers, right? And then in the 30s, uh, the whole conversation about the book, right, which is gonna, would sound very current to you um, today, uh, is one that's being had about other technologies that have to do with reproducing TypeScript. I hope that's clear. I was kind of garbling that a little bit, but um, in, in front...
1: visual designs on those job printing examples you were showing me, um, you were showing the group, and I was wondering about thinking about your narrow definition of print culture that you went through with us um, as a kind of imprinted culture that would attend to also the design, the visual, the artistic, mm-hmm. the flourishes and branded aspects of those job printing documents in that particular era. So I was wondering, um, a little bit about how visual culture or an imprinted culture or a culture of what might be printed might play into your definition of um, print culture as it relates to this job, printing
2: example. Yeah. See, I just want to. I don't, don't want to define job uh, <laughs> you know, print culture. It just, it's just—it's completely, you know, speechless. I think as a concept. But, uh, but I, t- I guess I take your point about the visual look of these. Things and sort of where that fits in um, the trade, you know, and so sort of the self-awareness of the trade at this moment. Um, this is so whether comfortably or uncomfortably a moment before graphic design, right, um, uh, which is going to in, a, in an intricate back formation look th- make things like um, Harple's typograph look horrible to us. Um, all those weird curlicues and clashing display fonts right we, we've been trained as good modernists right that that's wrong It's bad. It's ugly, um, but you know, of course this was before those developments um, uh, All of these there are a few of these specimen books and they are um, harbors included have a lot of uh, They're like trade manuals. They're like mox they have a lot of material in them that they tell you how to do this work Um, But, you know, I think it's important to remember they wouldn't include the specimens if the how-to message, right, was really going to tell you how to do it. You need the both pieces. They sort of work together to show that the description isn't worth anything and the specimens aren't worth anything. You have to somehow put them together. Um, So if you read the how-to, it's never clear who's doing what. um, Except that they're, you know, stupendously talented, if you've ever tried to do any of this composition. Um, it's in, you know it's just mind-boggling um, what some of these specimens look like. Um, yes,
1: I have a question about the term ephemera, which I think is way worse than print culture <laughs> <laughs> um, just because I think that I mean, just the example you gave the job printing, one of the pages showed a diploma right And there's nothing ephemeral about a lot of the single sheet non-bound art. Right. even multi-sheet, like deeds, property deeds. I mean, I work in special collections, and we've got pieces of printed, we've got printed items that are technically called ephemera that were meant to last a lot longer than a lot of the books that we have were meant to last, and a lot of books are specifically ephemera, like phone books, um, and that goes back a long right. way. So right. Right. I'm curious about um, whether or not your project uh, focusing so heavily as it does on this Horribly designated quote unquote genre yeah. um, might attack or otherwise work on that as a. I mean, you use the word document, yeah, um, which also doesn't seem to account for a lot of things. Like, I don't think a little newspaper mimeograph newspaper from the forties is really a document, if that fits in your category. Anyway, whether whether or not this is something that you're thinking right. about. And uh, approaching actively
2: in the project. Yeah, no, you're going to have to write the sequel because that's completely, <laughs> completely right. Um, I, I take your point entirely. I mean, ephemeral is a terrible category. Um, and one of the reasons that I settled on documents, um, what was kind of an inductive decision after a while, that, that uh, was just sort of thinking through the kinds of things that I was interested in, starting with job printing, so starting with lists like that list of The different genres, right? And ephemera doesn't come up in that list, right? That's our after the fact bibliographical designation of some, in some sense. Um, And it's horribly sloppy. It's not, it's not really kind of not useful for anything. Um, But we still need to be able to generalize about these things. Um, So we're kind of stuck with, with, you know, we're going to have to decide on terms. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, you need to make that case that ephemera um, but then let's talk about, you know, kind of the, the, the large classes of things um, that we've been shoveling into that category that need to be refined. Um, I did have to sort of work out in my mind a definition of what I meant by document and came up with something that really doesn't have to do with print production at all because, of course, documents predate printing, right? So I, I worked out a definition that has more to do with um, a kind of epistemic uh, purchase right. that documents are um, they're things you show, like a passport. Um, uh, uh, you know, so they're for you know, sort of knowing and showing at the same time, where knowing and showing are kind of locked together. Um, and so that makes that 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 a kind of I, it's a non-literary genre, but it's this big sloppy textual genre that I think is not a bibliographical genre, right? It's not a class of like, well, ugh, God, I'm getting tangled up. I agree with you.
0: Of course, the word diploma comes from the Greek meaning a text that's so important you fold it in two, <laughs> the poem, so that it's folded in upon itself to protect the writing on the inside. Hence, charters, the study of charters is called diplomatic, because they're folded right. in two to protect the writing on the well, inside. So it's a whole different thing. Hegel said, we know by name. And perhaps today we've learned something about the fact that sometimes we don't know about <laughs> <laughs> Please join me in thanking Lisa for her
1: wonderful <laughs> 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 Thank you. Oh, okay. For your it's office. I want to say thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs>
0: As they say in the midwest was a barn burner
1: <laughs>
0: and we should continue the conversation in the reception area of rare book school where there will be lots of food and adult beverages and you should go there now <laughs>